Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpen Radio talked with Juanita Irizarry about the struggle over the once-proposed Lakefront George Lucas Museum, chatted with two engineers about accessibility and design, and got the lowdown on a scorching new soul documentary. All this plus the Trump Diaries and a live performance in Studio B from the Odd Job Ensemble on the Lumpen Week in Review for November 10th, 2017. Hitting Left spoke with Friends of the Park Executive Director Juanita Zari about their controversial opposition to the George Lucas Museum project, which was ultimately withdrawn. Zari spoke about standing up to Rahm Emanuel, what the city had promised to do with that parking lot, and public-private space. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Well, let's talk about the, the Friends of the Parks. Absolutely. Um, uh, and wow, where should we begin? Uh, let's begin uh, with let's begin with uh, uh, how George Lucas uh, uh, got run out of town. Well, I, yeah. I shouldn't say that. I mean, yeah. I, how you helped. George Lucas was welcome to stay in Chicago and build his museum somewhere other than on public trust lakefront land. Uh, and but what's he, a, he and did not it, want to it, do that. for those for those people? For example, we we hope that we have listeners, you know, because we're on. Uh, we do a, this gets put as a podcast later today, and of course, people can listen to it uh, on the internet anywhere in the country. And so, uh, guess, uh, millions of listeners, million, millions so. of <laughs> millions of listeners um, about our lakefront and right. about the history of our lakefront and uh, why it's why it was important for friends of the parks to. Defend the lake, the lakefront against uh, against this museum yeah. or this pl- the plans of the mayor and George Lucas. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. And and we find that a lot of people don't really understand why it's important. So I'm happy to be able to talk about it. You know, Chicago's lakefront park system was made largely by filling in the lake. Um, some of us have heard the story growing up that the debris from the Chicago fire was dumped in the area that is now Grant Park. Um, and actually most of our lakefront parks um, and lake shore any property was created by infill in the lake. And there's this law that goes back to um, British and even Roman law um, called the Public Trust Doctrine, which talks about the water belonging to the people. And so there's a law in Illinois called the Public Trust Doctrine. There are other states that have also a Public Trust Doctrine, but it plays out slightly differently in different states. But all Illinoisans own all of the land that was created by infilling the lake. It doesn't belong to the government. It doesn't belong to private industry. It belongs to us. And so we have the right to say if we don't think that it's being used in the public interest. And so the public trust doctrine says you have to make sure that there is a protection of the public interest over private benefit. And so what we saw was that the Lucas Museum, the way that it was structured, and um, even though there are other museums along the lake, the, the, the way the Lucas Museum was structured was really for the private benefit of Mr. Lucas more than it was for the public benefit. And it was ugly. You know, we tried not to venture into that space as an organization. What a Surely monstrosity. there are people that thought it was oh horrible, God. others who thought it was kind of cool. We said it, we don't care if it's ugly or pretty or you what care it, it is. We wouldn't care if it was the most beautiful museum in the world. Else. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. now, well, yeah. can I, uh, just to follow up on the, on the lakefront issue, because um, uh, uh, I'm not, unlike you, uh, I, I'm only here since 75 or hey, 70, that's right. 73. I'm, I'm yeah. a long timer, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but, but it always struck me odd that on the one hand, there was this uh, the the idea of uh, the the lakefront belonging to all of us, 
and the and the, the Daniel and right there was Daniel Burnham Daniel who Burnham talked about it should be always the, open and free, right? And yet there's the Chicago Yacht Club, and there's the there's McCormick Place, and there's there's all these other other things that uh, that take up space on 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 the and so Soldier why, Field, uh, right. yeah, yeah. So right. why? Uh, 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 why this fight right. when they've been? Do- it right. seems like the, this has been given. The Chicago Yacht Club does not belong to all of us. This is the last well, time I, 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 I to give you some perspective. I would urge you to visit like Milwaukee or Cleveland. We actually have a lot more open, clear, and free lakefront than pretty much any other right. city. And you know, we've got staff from some of those places and boards board members from some of those places who say. I'm amazed at how much of Chicago's lakefront is accessible relative to other cities. So even though we do have some exceptions, um, it's been a hundred year battle to fight that off. And in fact, it was the creation of um, the Lakeside Center, McCormick Place, and the towers that are by Lakeshore Drive on the east side, right Mm -hmm. by Navy Pier. Those things triggered a new ordinance in Chicago called the Lakefront Protection Ordinance that says you cannot build east of Lakeshore Drive. It's weak, however, and with Chicago politics, it's very easy to override it, which is... So, 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 but you were, but you were, as an organization, uh, one of the things that people attacked you for Mm -hmm. was that you were somehow this elitist group that has taken it upon yourselves to be guardians of the lakefront, when, when even you say, well, for 100 years or you know, longer, the lakefront's been, been, been preserved for the most part. It's certainly, you're absolutely right. Places like I, I go visit my, my kids and grandkids in New York, and it, they're just now beginning to, right. to build parks along the East River where there was just warehouses and factories before. So uh, how, do you resp- how did you respond to people when they made this a, a claim of elitism on the— yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things, and and I think we need to do a better job as Friends of the Parks to educate folks about this history. But it was um, Montgomery Ward who older folks would know as, you know, the catalog business magnate who was based in Chicago, who really fought over Grant Park um, to make sure it was open, clear, and free. And even though he was a wealthy businessman, his idea was that it should be open to the masses, that we should not allow the elites to all buy up that lakefront land. So there's a long history of you know, some wealthy folks who saw the value of keeping it open um, for everyone. Um, you know, in the case of the Friends of the Parks, it's easy to um, classify our board in one way or another, but we actually had a lot more diversity than the average person or the average critic knew about our organization. Um, and, you know, we have folks from around the city in different backgrounds. Um, so it's a mix of views and a mix of reasons why um, people think um, that it's important to, to keep the, the lakefront open, clear, and free. Speaking of politics, it, it seems like uh, one of the things that has really changed in the last, uh, I'd say, 20 years is that it's not just about the lakefront, but that the whole city seems to be up for sale, right. uh, that uh, there seems to be a, a, a rapid erosion of public space in general, right. and with that, public decision-making. Right. And... Uh, it seems like everything that's not nailed down from the schools to the right. skyway to uh, the, the collection of trash. Right. There's this major privatization trend, right? Exactly. And it's, it's specific to public spaces, but it's also about all these other things, like you so said. So did you see this uh, Lucas Museum in that light? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, again, the, even the language of that public trust doctrine says, you know, you can't 
make this stuff for the private benefit over the public interest. Um, but it is connected to this much larger concern that we see about parks. And, you know, my analysis these days is that our mayor sees parks as revenue generators more than anything else. And, you know, we have concerts and parks that cost so much money that the average person can't come to the concert. You know, we have a lot of ways in which they're first trying to make money out of these public spaces. So, uh, uh, Right now, I, we see kind of the same thing happening with the, uh, well, with things like Amazon, for example, where the where the mayor and the governor are willing to give up, uh, uh, you know, tremendous uh, uh, benefits, property, uh, public property, whatever they can to try to attract uh, a, a corporation like Amazon to come into the city. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a major concern here and really a lot of places that our public policy has come to this place where we believe we have to give all the goodies away to get these companies to, to exist and to come to our communities. All right. We, we're going to get to more of this. Our guest is Juanita Arzari, uh, the, the uh, director of Friends of the Park. And uh, wow, Ed, Ed Marzuski just walked into the studio. Good morning, Ed. Uh, are you near Is that Mike? who that is? Uh, hey, guys. Good to see you. It's been a while. Uh, Ed, this, we, we want to get to Ed Marzuski too today because this is a this is a, a memorable week, right? Uh, it is a memorable week. It's uh, the why end. is that? Ed? Halloween <laughs> just happened. Houston Dia, Astros Dia, won the World Series. Houston Astros won the World Series. It's Dio de las Muertes was yesterday. That's right. It's an amazing week. And what else? Oh, one more thing. This this radio station has been on the air for one year. On the FM airwaves. So we're toddlers now, right? That's right. We're one. And what's amazing about it is that we, most of us forgot that it's been a year. All right. Because it's kind of just flew by. In Chicago spoke with Homa Gamey and Dennis Deacon, two Chicago engineers, about design choices and accessibility issues. The two talked about the emerging smart city movement, whether or not tiny houses are a good thing, and whether or not cities are becoming more accessible to people with disabilities. Texting Chicago airs every Friday at 1 p.m. I, I'm so glad that you are both here today. Uh, you know, thank you so much for, for making the time to be on our show. We really appreciate it. Both of you have had a lot of great things to say. And, and you're both experts in, in different aspects of design that have a great impact. So I wanted to talk about what design philosophies inspire you. Homa, you want to start? Um, design philosophies, to me, um, the direction we're going um, in terms of... Um, uh, sustainability mm-hmm. and renewable renewable energy is those are the things that personally I'm very interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and Dennis, well, I think one of the key things for me is you know obviously designing for accessibility, but more importantly now how things could be designed inclusively. So mm-hmm. instead of thinking about fixing the problem, uh, more about designing for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. So when when I see examples of that, I really do get charged. 
Mm-hmm. So it's sort of like a, when they say mobile first, it's sort of like inclusivity first. Exactly. Yeah, instead of going backwards and fixing a website that doesn't have accessibility, it's instead you know starting from the ground up with a, a new project, designing um, having that as a as an initiative to design for everyone. Exactly. You know, one example of that is you know a lot of people think about well, you know, it's such a challenge to caption videos on YouTube and such. Well, if you think of it, how many people actually are looking at those captions when they're in a bar or at the health club on the treadmill? Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. that case, it's serving multiple uh, uh, audiences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh so I, I thought uh, another thing, too, when it comes to accessibility and structural design, things like that, I wanted to ask what uh, ask you both what your thoughts are on smart cities. Do you want to go first? Dennis? Sure. Um, so my one of uh, my uh, stories or one of the thoughts on this is something when I used to work at uh, United Airlines, not specifically about the airline, but about the airline industry. One of the challenges that airports have is shuffling individuals with disabilities from one flight to another, making their connections, Mm -hmm. or even just getting them to their gate. Um, One of the things that airports are uh, trying out now is the use of beacons Mm -hmm. and uh, mobile devices to help people navigate uh, airports. As you know, they can be very complex. Mm -hmm. But navigate airports to get from point A to point B, even to... uh, you know, the uh, the restaurant of choice at uh, a given terminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a beacons will be useful for a lot of reasons. It's so easy to get lost in an airport, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, um, and, and Homa, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm conflicted, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, the engineer in me loves the idea of having all these smart, you know, um, uh, devices and yeah, being able to call my home from no matter where I am and turn something on or off um, is wonderful. Like I said, the engineering me, the, the engineer in me loves it, but I feel sad at the same time because I think we are moving away from dealing with each other, calling our mm-hmm. neighbors and asking, mm-hmm. hey, what's going on mm-hmm. next door to you? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, I don't know which is better or not. Maybe it's just a matter of getting used to something mm-hmm. new. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe I'm too old. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have that conflict. I mean, I, just like you said, I, I do like it. And at the same time, I feel sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. it's a good there. Yeah, it's I think people have a lot of thoughts about it uh, in both ways. It's good. And I appreciate you, you know, kind of telling us that because that's I think uh, coming from an engineer and in your personal perspective it's it's uh I think it's I think it's only normal to have questions about new things that are on the horizon what impacts they have um I think a lot of people feel the same way I I think particularly we tend to and again more engineers than normal people Mm -hmm. (laughs) um we we tend to hide behind um a screen or behind a um, phone or, you know, computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that really worries me because mm-hmm. it takes courage to be able to look at somebody and say something in their face. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to tweet, as mm-hmm. we know it. So um, there are good things and bad things about it. I just, we, I wish we were smarter about picking what the good things were mm-hmm. and losing the ones that 
weren't, you know, Mm -hmm. that good for us. Yeah. Well, and and another thing I was curious about, too, as as we, you know, kind of think through how we feel about smart cities, by contrast, there are movements happening right now also, like the tiny house movement, and they incorporate tools that help people go off the grid completely. There are tools that, you know, collect rainwater so you don't have to have, you know, the, the same type of water hookup. There's solar energy so you don't have to have electricity. There's ways to heat a home without having a gas service. Um, and, the, and so it's, it's almost like the, in some ways, the opposite of being on a grid. W- what are your thoughts about that? I have to turn to you. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm trying to think of uh, a scenario. Well, I, I think, again, this is very similar to um, the, uh, what we end up with smart cities mm-hmm. because you become um, isolated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful to, not, to be independent, mm-hmm. but at the same time, where do you draw the line? So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm sorry that I'm not being, you know, certain. To me, it's not a black and white issue. Yeah, well, I I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it is a black or white issue for a lot of people. And it's important to, you know, to talk about, to discuss it, because I think a a lot of people are trying to, you know, just get in their minds how they feel about these things, too, and and what their thoughts are. And I think you're right. I think there are a lot of gray areas, um, you know, for discussion for even, you know, like, like philosophical considerations, too. Like, what does it do to humanity to be isolated or to have things that isolate? And within both both systems, the idea of a smart city and the idea of going off the grid, there are elements of isolation. And and is that good? Is that bad? Is that effective for some people and not so for, for others? Um, and and, and what, what does it mean for the future when these things are, you know, um, Im- implemented throughout a, a large part of our population, too? So, and when, when we look to the future... Um, do, do either of you have thoughts about what breakthrough technologies are on the horizon? Um, any any ideas, any things you've seen in the news or excited about? I mean, I, I want to know personally how soon we're going to be 3D printing our dinner every night. <laughs> well, I tell you, I do not, not want to enough. miss. <laughs> I refuse to skip out on my wife's cooking. So yeah, <laughs> Like I said, not soon enough. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. I can't wait. Um, I think... Um, we, I would say, and I'm not an expert, but definitely in a decade we're going to see a lot of that. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know about the dinner, but, um, uh, you know, definitely a lot of, uh, I can see it, for example, in medicine. Um, that would be something that uh, would be extremely helpful, the 3D uh, printing. Also, what I do see um, becoming more and more, um, as we discussed earlier, is uh, the use of drones as well as, um, you know, the 3D um, uh, modeling, BIM, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, that, that just the coordination between different disciplines within engineering when you are mm-hmm. designing a structure, that's going to be more and more uh, virtual reality, mm-hmm. all of that. I, 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 can, I see it coming. Mm-hmm. Good. And, and Dennis? Yeah, I, I mean, as I look, you know, there's a lot of things that are happening today, and it's just being built upon in the future. Um, Apple recently, well, I'm not going to say about a year ago, uh, updated their accessibility section on their website, and they featured a video uh, of this uh, female. In a, She had cerebral palsy. She's in a uh, chair, and she's being groomed. And then we see these different scenes in this video. And at some point, 
we see this one scene of a, a woman in a wheelchair racing on a, on a stretch of sidewalk along a beach, go in reverse, and we realize that this woman who has cerebral palsy in a chair is actually editing the video. And this is all through switch technology, so it's basically buttons that are triggered by a, a part of the body. In this case, it was her head on her headrest. And she's operating the, the same video editing software that you know the Hollywood studios use. Hmm. Uh, so to show how technology is supporting the physical devices, plugging mm-hmm. into those, and providing the same capabilities as anyone else. Again, it's, it's creating capabilities to be independent uh, for mm-hmm. uh, individuals. Mm-hmm. That's good. And um, yeah, I think, I think there are so many, so many exciting things on the horizon that we can look to. And I think a lot of people, they think, think of technology and they think about... Um, you know, what's going to be happening in the next 10, 10 years? How will everything change? And um, it's good. It's good to think about that and talk about it from your from your perspectives and the different design areas that you do and what your thoughts are. This week on the Trump Diaries. Trump says our justice system is a laughing stock. Republicans sell a tax plan with clear winners and losers. And fancy that, the winners are the Trump family. Trump is very unhappy the Department of Justice is not investigating Hillary Clinton. Paul Ryan says prayer might stop gun violence. And more indictments are coming from Robert Mueller. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 287, November 2nd. The FBI charged Sefilo Saipov in federal court with terrorism and located a second man wanted in connection with the New York City attack. Eight were killed and 11 injured in the deadliest terror attack in New York since 9-11 when Saipov drove a car into a busy west side bike path. In a series of tweets that could complicate the trial of Saipov, Trump denounced the American criminal justice system as a laughingstock and a joke that is too weak to deter terrorism. Trump also said he would send the subject to Gitmo. Finally, Trump blamed Chuck Schumer, tweeting that the terrorists came into our country through what is called the Diversity Visa Lottery Program, a Chuck Schumer beauty. I want merit-based. I have just ordered Homeland Security to step up our already extreme vetting program. Being politically correct is fine, but not for this. In fact, in 2013, Schumer was a member of the Senate's Gang of Eight, which proposed eliminating the Diversity Lottery. The bill passed in the Senate, but died in the House. Schumer's response to Trump was cutting. I guess it's not too soon to politicize a tragedy. Trump, where is your leadership? The contrast between Bush's actions after 9-11 and Trump's actions this morning could not be starker. And Facebook, Google, and Twitter testified before the Senate Intelligence Committee for the second day in a row for answering questions from the Senate Judiciary Committee. The tech firms admitted they could have done more to prevent Russian meddling in the U.S. election. However, it was revealed that Twitter offered Russian television network RT 15% of its U.S. election advertising inventory for $3 million. RT is the Kremlin's principal international propaganda outlet. And political reports that in a call with Steve Bannon, Trump blamed his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, for his role in decisions that led to Robert Mueller's appointment as special counsel. In the same call, Trump complained about Kushner's advice that led to the decisions to fire Michael Flynn and James Comey. Separately, BuzzFeed reported that Roger Stone told Trump that Kushner was giving him bad political advice. And a Trump campaign aide described Jared as, quote, the worst political advisor in the White House in modern history. Day 288, November 3rd. Republican lawmakers unveiled a sweeping rewrite of the tax code yesterday that appears to pick clear winners and losers in a drive to lower taxes on corporations and the very wealthy. 
The tax bill could also include a measure to do away with the health laws mandate that most Americans have health coverage or pay a penalty at Trump's insistence. In related news, a new analysis of the bill finds it would cost too much for Republicans to pass it using reconciliation. Among the winners are the very wealthy who would see the estate and alternative minimum taxes eliminated, hedge funds, multinational corporations, and the president. Losers include charities, the sick, the middle class, and the real estate industry. As expected, Trump nominated Jerome Powell to chair the Federal Reserve, bypassing Janet Yellen for a second term, returning to a replacement who is expected to stay the course. Colleagues consider Powell a centrist and pragmatist. And the EPA barred anyone that receives EPA grant money from serving on panels that counsel the agency on scientific decisions. In doing so, EPA head Scott Pruitt removed six scientists and academics from advisory positions at the EPA. Pruitt is expected now to appoint several industry representatives to those panels. However, in a surprise, the White House endorsed an exhaustive report that the Earth is experiencing the warmest period in the history of civilization, and that humans are the dominant cause of that temperature rise. The report directly contradicts most of the Trump administration's position on climate change. The global long-term warming trend is unambiguous, says the report, and there is no convincing alternative explanation that anything other than human activity is to blame. The U.S. military conducted two airstrikes against ISIS fighters in Somalia for the first time. The strikes were carried out in northeastern Somalia with the first around midnight local time and the second later in the morning. ISIS-linked fighters are growing presence in the Horn of Africa, long threatened by the Al-Qaeda-linked extremist group Al-Shabaab. And Sergeant Bo Bergdahl was ordered dishonorably discharged from the army by a military judge on Friday but received no prison time for desertion. Trump quickly criticized the ruling as disgraceful. Sergeant Bergdahl's rank was also reduced to private, and he forfeited $1,000 a month of his pay for 10 months. Colonel Nance, the judge in the case, did not explain the reasoning for the sentence he imposed. And a former Trump campaign aide dropped out of the running on Thursday for a senior position at the Department of Agriculture three days after his name was mentioned in connection with a guilty plea arising from the Mueller investigation. Sam Clovis had been nominated as chief scientist of the Department of Agriculture. Clovis's qualifications to be the chief scientist of the department have been widely questioned. Clovis is not a scientist. And the Justice Department has identified at least six Russian government officials involved in the DNC hack that resulted in thousands of emails being released by WikiLeaks last year. Prosecutors have assembled evidence to charge the Russian officials and could bring a case next year. And Elizabeth Warren and Donna Brazile both said the 2016 Democratic primary was rigged. In a political op-ed, Brazile accused Hillary Clinton's campaign of unethical conduct that compromised the party's integrity through a joint fundraising agreement that had Clinton controlled the party's finances, strategy, and all the money raised before she officially won the nomination. Day 289, November 4th. Records show that a March 31st, 2016 meeting between Trump, Sessions, and the campaign's foreign policy team, George Papadopoulos introduced himself and said that he had connections that could help arrange a meeting between then-candidate Trump and President Putin. Trump and Jeff Sessions have long denied knowing about Trump campaign's contacts with Russia. Sessions may have perjured himself, and Democrats now want him to come back to the Senate floor and testify. In a related story, in a call with the New York Times, Trump said he was, quote, not angry at anybody. The investigation into his campaign's link with Russia, quote, have nothing to do with us. Carter Page also testified he told Jeff Sessions about his 2016 trip to Russia during the campaign. Sessions had testified earlier during his confirmation hearing that he had no knowledge of any conversation between anyone connected to the Trump campaign. That was a lie. During his confirmation hearing, Sessions was asked if anyone affiliated with the Trump campaign communicated with the Russian government. Sessions responded, I'm not aware of any of those activities. I didn't have, did not have communications with the Russians, and I'm unable to comment on it. And Republicans continuing what many see as a sleazy attempt to provide cover for Trump during the investigation called on Robert Mueller to resign as special counsel over what they contend to be obvious conflicts of interest. Matt Getz, Andy Biggs, and Louise Gilmart introduced a measure to put the House on record describing Mueller as unfit to lead the Russia pose because of his so-called relationship with James Comey, who was Mueller's fired successor at the FBI. 
Also, Trump is, quote, very unhappy, disappointed, and frustrated with the Justice Department for not investigating Hillary Clinton. In an extraordinary interview with The Larry O'Connor Show, Trump acknowledged that presidents are not supposed to intervene with law enforcement decisions, which he called the saddest thing. Then he insisted the Department of Justice investigate using nicknames, Crooked Hillary, Crazy Bernie, and Pocahontas. I look at what's happening with the Justice Department. Well, why aren't they going after Hillary Clinton with her emails and with her the dossier? The president added he was very unhappy with where the Justice Department isn't going. I'm not supposed to be doing the kind of things that I would love to be doing, Trump said, and I'm very frustrated by it. Rick Perry suggested expanding the use of fossil fuels could help prevent sexual assault. From the standpoint of sexual assault, Perry said, when the lights are on, when you have light that shines the righteousness, if you will, on those type of acts. The Energy Secretary also said that while he thinks climate change is real, I still think the science is out on whether humans are the cause of it. Perry complained during a visit in Cape Town that, quote, if you admit you support fossil fuels, it's like saying you've made some huge social error. And a Twitter contactor leaving the company deactivated Trump's account yesterday. It was down for 11 minutes before finally being restored. Trump tweeted Friday morning, quote, I guess the word must be finally getting out and having an impact. Day 290, November 5th. A massive data leap being called the Paradise Papers has revealed that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has retained investments in a shipping firm he wants controlled. That firm has significant business ties to a Russian oligarch subject to American sanctions and to President Vladimir Putin's son-in-law. The investment is controversial as the USA has sought to punish Russia's energy sector for Putin's seizing of Crimea. The shipper handles natural gas exclusively. Robert Mueller is expected to bring an indictment against Michael Flynn and his son this week, NBC News reports. The charges reportedly include money laundering, perjury, and acting as a foreign agent. Flynn would be the first senior Trump administration official to be charged. And Senator Rand Paul was allegedly attacked by a next-door neighbor, identified as Rene Bauscher, who was charged with fourth-degree assault this weekend. The attack resulted in Paul suffering five broken ribs and bruises to his lungs. It is unclear when Paul returned to Washington. The attack apparently was not political in nature. It was over landscaping. And the Republican tax plan has been revealed to contain several hidden provisions that have nothing to do with taxes would make major societal changes. One is an anti-abortion code that would codify the rights of unborn children. Another would repeal the Johnson Amendment, which would allow churches to engage in political activities. Both amendments are sure to be bitterly contested. Day 291, November 6th. The latest mass shooting in America happened outside a small rural church 30 miles from San Antonio, Texas. 26 people were killed, including children and a pregnant woman. 24 were wounded. The killer, identified as Devin Kelly, a young white male, opened fire on the church using a Ruger AR-556 semi-automatic rifle. Kelly passed a background check due to a mistake as he had been discharged from the Air Force for bad conduct. He was convicted of assaulting his wife and breaking his young child's skull. Trump, pressed on the shooting by reporters, said, quote, mental health is your problem here. This isn't a gun situation. This is a mental health problem at the highest level. Trump also said hundreds more would have died in Texas if gun laws were tougher, and another man, using his own gun, wouldn't have been able to neutralize the shooter. Paul Ryan then suggested that prayer works as an effective form of gun control. And Bloomberg reported that the Russian lawyer that met with Trump Jr. says Jr. offered to have an anti-Russian law re-examined if Trump won the election. Looking ahead, if we come to power, we can return to this issue and think what to do about it, Trump Jr. said of the Magnitsky Act, which the lawyer was lobbying against. Russian tech leader Yuri Milner invested $850,000 in a startup called Cadre that Jared Kushner co-founded in 2014. Kushner did not disclose his ownership in Cadre in an initial financial disclosure form when he became a White House advisor. In July, Kushner told the Senate Intelligence Committee that he never relied on Russian funds to finance my business activities in the private sector. 
and on swing through Asia, Trump called Japan a nation of samurai and then wondered openly why did not shot down a missile fired from North Korea. He then said Japan can protect itself from North Korea by purchasing U.S. military equipment to shoot down those missiles. The Prime Minister of Japan is going to be purchasing massive amounts of military equipment, as he should, said Trump. Day 292, November 7th. Carter Page today testified he received permission from the Trump campaign chair Corey Lewandowski to visit Moscow in July 2016. Page said he also told senior campaign official Sam Clovis, Hope Hicks, J.D. Gordon, and Jeff Sessions about that trip to Russia. Page sent an email in his return to saying he had received incredible insights and outreach from senior members of Putin's administration and suggested that Trump should make a foreign policy speech in Russia and, quote, raise the temperature a little bit. And Syria said it will join the Paris Climate Agreement today, leaving the United States the only country to reject the global deal. France, meanwhile, has said that Trump, for the time being, is not invited to December's climate change summit in Paris. The White House has prepared an executive order which would weaken the Obamacare Act's individual mandate. The new order would broaden the hardship exemption that was established for those facing extraordinary circumstances, such as the death of a family member, bankruptcy, or natural disaster. Trump is planning to sign the order if Republicans fail to include the measure in tax reform. 37% of Americans have a favorable view of the Democratic Party, the lowest mark in more than a quarter century of polling. 30% of Americans hold a favorable view of the Republican Party. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free chatted with Jeff Broadway and Corey Bailey, the directors of Living on Soul, a documentary about Daptone Records, and that label's legendary three-day residency at the Apollo. Broadway and Bailey talked about racial justice, the quiet power of Sharon Jones, and why they chose to use vintage lenses. Radio Free with John Daly and Jamie Trecker airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Welcome back to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio. We are talking about SimFest today, and we have the directors of Living on Soul, which is having its Chicago premiere at the Chicago International Movie and Music Festival this weekend at Martyrs on Thursday, November 9th at 7.30. And we're speaking with Jeff Broadway and Corey Bailey by phone. Jeff and Corey, you guys there? Yes, we are. Yeah, we are. How's it going? It's Welcome. going great. And I got to say, personally, I am an enormous Daptone Records fan. So uh, I'm going to fanboy out on this for a little bit. I'm super right excited to, to see that you guys have been able to do this. And can you just tell us about, first of all, how this, this project came to Genesis? For people that don't know, Daptone Records is a 20 year old uh, New York based record label that has put out people such as Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. They've been kind of part of the modern soul and funk revival. You just heard, uh, if you were listening, a, a tune by the, the uh, reggae group, The Frighteners, whose lead singer, unfortunately, just passed away. Their, that album is their last. But Daptone Records has been an enormous force in, in modern indie music. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the project and, and uh, what, how this came about. For sure. Um, so I had, uh, I had finished a film called Our Vinyl Weighs a Ton um, that's sort of loosely on the yeah. L.A. hip-hop scene and uh, about Stone's Throw Records. Yeah, great film, great film. Thanks. And um, Stone's Throw and uh, Daptone actually share a UK label representative um, named Zena White, and Zena suggested that uh, Neil Sugarman speak to me and Corey, and um, Corey and I had just started um, our production company, Valentine Street, and we hit the road with them in summer 2014 and started in London and went to Glastonbury and to Paris and uh, into Germany as well, um, and... Uh, while we were on the road with them, Neil found out at Glastonbury that they'd been invited to do a three-night residency at the Apollo that December, and we kind of felt like we had identified what you know the film should be centered around um, and anchored by, which was this 
pretty historic, um, especially in contemporary context, um, multi-night residency at the Apollo. And how much, I mean, I have not seen the film yet. Obviously, Sharon Jones has, has passed away since the film has come out. How much does, does, does her performance with the Dap Kings play into this film? And was her, was her cancer diagnosis a, a kind of a major thing you guys were playing with at this time? Well, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily an arc that we explore in the film. Um, she was in remission uh, when we were filming with her, and there was actually a Barbara Koppel film, a beautiful film that she did prior to us uh, linking up that was specifically on Sharon's struggle with cancer. But that being said, it was definitely like uh, there was some context there, and she really incorporates that into her live performance, you know, with her song Get Up and Get Out, and she really brings the house down in discussing her struggle with cancer while on stage. So it's one of those things that is omnipresent but never really uh, dove into for a reason because, you know, they kind of carried on with their lives and we were really shooting a moment in time when she was in remission and when she was back on stage and strong and everybody was really kind of moving forward. So that's what we kind of tried to highlight was the moving forward. And can you tell us, just for listeners that don't know, what is so special about a three-night residency at the Apollo? People in Chicago may not know necessarily what the legendary Apollo Theater is. Sure. Um, and I'm sure you guys can uh, can help us out with this, too. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, the, the Apollo is really, um, it is the sole venue of the world, really, um, in Harlem on 125th Street. Um, it's kind of the house that James Brown helped to build. Um, you know, there are people who are still working there today who have been involved. You know, we're talking like 80-year-old people who have been working there off and on since they were 10, 15 years old um, in the neighborhood. And uh, so it's, it's been, or it had been something like 35 or 40 years, I believe, since there had been a multi-night residency at the Apollo. And I'm pretty sure that it's accurate that the last person to do that was James Brown. Um, you know, James Brown's like funeral procession ended at, at the Apollo in Harlem. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's really kind of the bee's knees as far as funk and soul music in America goes. And I think by extension, that's, you know, why I said the world. Now, when you guys filmed this show, I, I, I remember reading on your Kickstarter sometime back, you guys decided to film this using vintage lenses. Why did you make that decision? Well, that was a decision, um, we made for a number of reasons. Um, one, I think all of our references were kind of of the golden era of soul. You know, it was James Brown at the Apollo, old footage of him. It was uh, Otis Redding at Monterey Pop. And um, there's a quality to those lenses that you, when you combine those with the 70s broadcast lights in the Apollo, and you kind of, um, and you have this performance that is, kind of a, of a bygone era, it made sense to us. But above and beyond that, there's also like this, um, there's this almost clumsiness to them um, that we always found really added some texture to these old performances. You know, you had to zoom in kind of haphazardly and find the focus, and it really added to the energy of the room. And then, you know, that also coincided with... Um, 
you know, Daptone's approach to music is all analog. They record everything analog, and they do that for a reason, because of the texture, because of the sound, because that's what they grew up on. And there's just something about modern lenses and kind of modern cameras in general that have taken all the imperfections out and in a way kind of taken that, like, you know, of-the-moment feel out. Um, so that was an approach that we went, and because we did that, the cameras are really big and bulky, and our production slowly started to mirror uh, just how we built the cameras and how we had to put the shooters and where we had to put the shooters, a lot of the old framing and the compositions of these old performances. Um, so that was that was where that choice came from. What were some of the things that you were surprised to learn about Daptone through this process? Um, surprised to learn about. I mean, just really as we spent more and more time with them, realizing how close-knit the family was and how um, to the outsider this seems like, you know, a, a label with uh, a just, just so happens a number of amazing artists. You know, it just seems like they're really good at selecting the bands. But I think more than that, it's really that they kind of grew up playing together. You know, Gabe's been on every band, every other, you know, everybody's played with everybody. And there's a unity there that you don't really see in any other label. Um, across the bands, they've all formed bands together, been in different iterations of bands together. And so on the Super Soul Review, it worked so fluidly because it was people, it were, it, one band member had written a song for a whole nother band. You know what I mean? So they could hop in and out and people could play on each other's stuff totally seamlessly and fluidly. One thing I wanted to ask you about it and something I, I have not seen the film yet, but I've, I've watched the trailer. One of the things that struck me about just seeing that is the kind of easy, um, easiness between uh, the performers, the people from Daptone, and uh, frankly, a, an audience that is uh, predominantly white and performers that are mixed race. Did you guys feel that there was any kind of rapport or anything going on there that kind of spoke to larger issues of, of racial harmony and justice? Yeah, I mean, I think, Char you know, that's definitely something that Charles was huge on um, and something that I think, you know, if you've seen Charles once, you've, you know, you've... Uh, You've probably gotten some of that from him um, as kind of part of his like interludes or introductions to certain songs, um, and definitely you know there's a there's a scene in the film where Sharon's talking to Son and Star, um, aka the Dabettes, who are her backup singers, and the Como Mamas, who are three older black women from Como, Mississippi, and she's talking about the first time she walked into the room with the Dab Kings, and that she was just pretty surprised that uh it was it was a room full of white boys as she says you know and um i think that that's something that for um some of the daptone artists was maybe a thing but like by and large and, and certainly by the time we met them a total non-issue and i think it's interesting with the audience um you know it's um I think that their music kind of gets gets like lumped into the world music category, and like by you know it's for whatever reason I think that when you go to world music shows and you see what whatever gets lumped into the the world music categorization live, um, you do prime you know you see predominantly white audiences, and I think that you know it's like kind of a, a perplexing thing. Um, in some ways, you know, it's like three nights in Harlem and these dynamite, um, 
black front, you know, front people and, and Sharon and Charles really headlining the show. And, uh, yeah, you, you know, you get, you get mostly, um, a white crowd. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's, I guess it's just one of those things. And, uh, I don't think that it really has much, much impact on, on anybody, you know, in any sort of, um, any sort of negative way. Right. Um, I want to ask you, I mean, obviously Sharon uh, seems to have one of the most compelling performances in the film, but was there any other performance in the film that really stood out for you guys as, as kind of one that, that really touched you and brought the house down personally for you guys? I, th- I think for both Corey and me, like the, the Como Mamas, when, when they uh, just walked out and, and like pretty abruptly started a 30-minute acapella set of just singing like old hymnals and gospel in front of uh, a sold-out Apollo, um, especially on the on the heels of the last question, it's like really just kind of bringing uh, bringing a, a thirty person you know tiny church in Mississippi to the the Apollo stage, and um, you know we talked to Gabe about because Gabe was really kind of the musical director of uh, of the show. That's Gabe Roth, who's the bassist and, and the Dap Kings, and um, kind of Sharon's chief songwriter. Uh, but he wanted them to to do their set a cappella and felt like it would just kind of be a moment and uh it's it certainly was you know and we hope that that permeates in the film too that's amazing uh we we know that you got to get going but your film is living on soul it is uh part of a the simfest simfest.org that's c-i-m-m-f-e-s-t.org it's going to be featured here in chicago on opening night at martyrs that's thursday at 7 30 p.m guys i, I just want to say congratulations it, it seems like a huge accomplishment what are you guys going to look to do next and that's uh, that's kind of a question we keep getting. Um, we've got a couple projects in the works, so keep your eye out. Nothing we can announce quite yet. Um, but really, I think our trajectory is just um, these kind of like stories behind music, you know. And um, I think this film really showcases that. And I think what you guys will see next from us will kind of continue in that in that lineage, so to speak. That's awesome. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff and Corey. Cool. Thanks, guys. Hope to see you all out there. Yep. When you've got no port to call safe harbor, we KDO, welcome to Odd Job Ensemble into Studio B Monday for a two-hour performance and interview session. Producer Jamie Trecker asked the questions while KDO played the saw with this three-piece from Santa Rosa, California. This excerpt showcases Odd Job's swirling melodies and throwback sounds. Planet KDO airs the first and third Monday of the month, drive time at 4 p.m. KDO is actually here. Do you want to say something, KDO? Hello, good afternoon. But KDO is not going to be talking that much today because special in the studio is the Odd Job Ensemble and KDO is playing with them. So without further ado, I want to uh, introduce the members of this troupe who are hailing from Santa Rosa, California. The Odd Job Ensemble is Kaylee Yamanoa, Ben Viner, and Violette Morier. Welcome, guys. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thanks. 
good stuff, guys. Hey, thank, you. thank you. So, I mean, we talked a little bit before the show. You recorded this album in the same place that Tom Waits did, and I think people listening to it might hear a lot of similarities between the style of music that he's popularized, Gogo Bordello and stuff mm. like that. But what what is the stuff that you guys are actually kind of influenced in? Because generally, you know, musicians are not necessarily influenced by the stuff that they sound like, you know, in a mm-hmm. weird way. What, what do you guys listen to and what do you guys care about? Um, so me personally, uh, a Clay, Clay, the accordion player here, um, I grew up playing a lot of punk rock, um, and I, I, I still draw a lot of my musical influence from, from like that energy that that music has. Mm-hmm. Um, I listen to a lot of Eastern European folk music and a lot of bluegrass and country. I kind of listen to a little bit of everything. Um, but with my accordion playing and my writing, I draw a lot of influence from um, a lot of Eastern European folk music and um, a lot of accordion music in general. Uh, and I try to put a new, a new little flair to it and keep it mm-hmm. um, from sounding too traditional, but kind of keeping the traditional roots. Um, well, isn't the accordion kind of punk rock anyway? It's pretty punk rock. Bit, yeah. You know, I mean, when you think about it, it's an instrument you can take anywhere, make a lot of noise, you can yeah. get some money for it, get yeah. a little cup out. Yeah. If you have a monkey, you know, it helps. Oh, yeah. You know, anything involving apes is fairly punk rock. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I used to take um, a friend of mine. She had this, uh, or she still has this, this, little, this little terrier dog. And w- I, I, back home, I do a lot of street performing. And I would take the dog with me and put the dog in my accordion case. Um, <laughs> and I put little dollar bills in, in, in her collar. And she's my little, like a little cash cow, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, about the, what about you, Ben and Violet? Um, I am influenced by, like, a lot of like big band music and and kind of early jazz. Big Spider Becky and um, more more like Duke Ellington and okay. Glenn Miller and Benny Goodman and like I I really really love like that kind of hyper arranged jazz mm-hmm. stuff. And then I also really like metal and industrial music and electronica and mm-hmm. like some more abrasive stuff and break beats and. But I'd kind of draw on some of the similar things that Kalei talked about in Eastern European music and various European folk styles Mm -hmm. try to add some sort of weird new varnish to it. You know, it's it's actually weird. One of the na- the neighborhood you're actually in right now, but you probably don't know this, Bridgeport, mm. used to have a lot of uh, dance halls and a lot of uh, Duke Elding actually played here, oh, cool. uh, as did Big Spider Becky. This used to be um, a Lithuanian neighborhood, um, and Bridgeport uh, is known as having the most churches of any area in Chicago because it wow. had so many different nationalities emigrate to it. Oh, yeah. So a lot of these old buildings, and in fact, um, not the one that you're in presently, but across the street, and uh, if you came here on Archer Avenue, you would have seen it, or and just on walls, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of buildings that had uh, second and third floor dance halls. So oh, it was very, very cool. popular wow. in this area for the Lithuanian and Czech families to rent it out and have a concert and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So you guys would have fit right in here, you know, <laughs> say, you know, about seven years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Good stuff. So what do you guys hope to accomplish on this tour other than, you know, sell a couple copies of your album? Uh, well, we're, we've camped a few times in some really beautiful places and mm-hmm. visited some amazing natural, you know, vistas and stuff and just been videotaping the whole thing and be editing together some music videos that uh, I, I'm really enjoying making like a new kind of media. You know, once we have this album done, we're starting to set it to new, uh, you know, multimedia projects mm-hmm. and use it as a resource, too. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys had any particularly interesting tour dates on this tour? Let's see. That are clean, clean stories yeah. that we can tell on yeah. non-commercial radio. Um, we had a we had a, a drummer 
uh, <laughs> at one of the other other bands. We were about to go on, uh, so we thought, and um, and this other band, uh, their drummer quit just moments before the show. That was a pretty dramatic night. Uh, I can't, I won't name any names, but you know, there, what, there what was, city was it in? Um, Somewhere, somewhere in, in Utah, right? Somewhere in Utah. Somewhere oh, in Utah. One of the flying Utahns or something like yes, that. Yes, something yes. like that. Uh-huh, okay. <laughs> it's an interesting night. So the, the, the sound guy comes up to us um, about an hour before we were supposed to play. He's like, hey, so uh, we need you guys to go on right now. We're like, we thought we were going on an hour. He's like, no, we need to go on right now. We need you to play double your set length. We're like, all right. All right. <laughs> and turns out the band uh, broke up right before we played. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's that's very professional thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> do you guys have another couple songs that you want to play for us before we yeah. uh, have to go to our first uh, news, weather, and traffic break here yeah. on Lumpin' Radio? What's what's the next song? We're gonna play another song off the album. Um, this song is called "The Air Up Here," uh, and I wrote this song. Um, I teach at a at a music camp up in Mendocino County called called, called Lark Camp, and it's okay. a it's a seven day long world music camp, uh, and there's three different camps. Um, so I was walking from the camp that I, I teach at mm-hmm. to another one, and I just had my accordion with me and just started noodling around, and this is the song that came out of that um, that experience. It's called LARP Camp? LARP. Oh, okay, so it's not about live-action role. No, no, no. Because that would be really there, cool. there is some overlap, though, with there the people in the LARP community. And <laughs> okay. Because is, is there LARPing there? They're not maybe necessarily there, but uh, the same people also LARP some, sometimes. What, yeah. kind of, what kind of LARPing is there? Let's, I like this a lot. Um, this is a great, great avenue. Well, in now. where we live, there's actually quite a bit of LARPing that happens. Okay. Um, uh, there's a really, really healthy nerd and geek community where, uh-huh. where we come from, you know. Uh, some of the people spilled out of Silicon Valley that kind of live around us. And, uh-huh. uh, yeah, Regal Park in the town I grew up in, I, on, like, Sundays or something, the people there with their boffers and their beanbags throwing at each other, <laughs> acting out things in the oak trees. And, you know, I was more into Magic the Gathering at the time. Oh, but, okay. Uh, I but I was, like, you know, friends with the folks that were doing that, too. God, that's good. So you guys didn't bond over your common love of LARPing, then? No. No, we did not. We I, I never uh, was into magic or LARPing, but I collected rocks when I was a kid. I collected rocks and didn't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's another type of style. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I can follow that up with a joke, so you, right. guys, uh, you guys should play this next song. All right. All right. Here's uh, the air up here. <laughs>
The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lump in Theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump in Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lump in Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Yeah.